1: That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today.
2: I don't know if there's ever been such a self-centered kind of culture as emerged in the United States, for example, in the 20th century.
3: Hello, welcome to The Klein Show on the Vox Media Podcast Network. My guest today is somebody I wanted to talk to on this show forever. Uh, I began reading Barbara Ehrenreich in college. I think the first book of hers I read was Nickeled and Dimed. And I've followed her work since then, but until I began prepping for this conversation, I didn't realize at all just how vast her work is. I mean, it is an amazing body of work, not just being way ahead of a lot of the economic and political currents we see today, both in Nickel and Dimed, but also in her book, Fear of Falling, which just recently, it was written initially in 1990, but it recently got re-released. But my God, she's done amazing books on the anthropology of war and collective joy. Dancing in the streets is really is really just a terrific piece of work. She's done a memoir that is both about her search as a young person for truth and her life, but also a series of mystical experiences she had when she was young going on uh, and, until now. And how she's tried to integrate them, despite the fact that she's an atheist and a skeptic. We talk about that, but it's also just a fascinating piece of work. Um, she has this great book called Natural Causes on Death and how we should think about it and how we do think about it. She's books on positive thinking and the lies of it. Her work just stretches so far and has been so ahead of the curve on so much. So it was a real pleasure, a real pleasure to get to talk to her here. Um, before I jump into it, I want to do a couple quick announcements. One is very important, which is that we are hiring for a political reporter position at Vox. Um, this is on the tech side of the operation, but if you're interested in it, and we are interested in people from non-traditional backgrounds, so if you've been working, say, at a think tank, or you're a political scientist, or somebody who has a lot of experience covering, thinking about analyzing politics, but maybe your background is not directly journalistic, we are interested in you too. Go to voxmedia.com slash careers to find that job listing. Again, voxmedia.com slash careers. As always, my email is Kleinshow at vox.com, but here is Barbara Ehrenreich. Barbara Ehrenreich, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you. Thank you for inviting me. I have to start with the absolute best Barbara Ehrenreich fact I learned while preparing for this, which is you could leg press 270 pounds.
2: I could. (laughs) I've declined since since then due to one injury or another. That is more than I've ever been able to leg press by a lot. Yeah, men used to gather around and watch me.
3: (laughs) That was fun. (laughs) That's that's an amazing achievement. Um, In in that book, that's from uh, Living Causes. In that book, one of the things you discuss is the efforts we go to to maintain an illusion that we have control over our own bodies. And as I've been reading your books, this idea of control comes up a lot. So I I want to ask a question this way. How much control do you believe we have over our own lives?
2: Not as much as we usually think we have. We live in a culture that says, you know, pretty much you can have what you want or do what you want just by willing it strongly enough. So there, there's a misperception, I think, and that we, we overestimate how much we as individuals' selves uh, control what happens to ourselves. How
3: much do you think the sense of individual illusion of control ladders up to the sense of societal illusion of control, which is to say that there's this, I think, connection in your work between the ways we believe we can control, say, whether we'll ever die by going to the gym enough and taking the supplements and, you know, getting the the, the treatments all the way up to some of the stuff you talk about in books like Fear of Falling, which is the way we believe everybody's in full control of their economic life outcomes. And if you're not doing well, if you have a low-wage job, if you don't have health insurance, well, that's really on you. How much do you think that that individual and social sense of control are, are connected phenomena?
2: Very much so. We always hear that, you know, what whatever you want, you you can achieve if you concentrate on it hard enough. And that's sort of the fundamental rule of positive thinking, which I am not in favor of. There's nothing to stop us except our own failure to will what we want hard enough.
3: You rarely hear somebody say they're not in favor of positive thinking. So tell me why you're not in favor of it.
2: Well, I guess I encountered it a little late in my evolution as a human being. I was um, diagnosed with breast cancer in about 2000. And what struck me was the promise that you could get over it you will you will be better you will be cured if you have the right attitude not if you have the right chemotherapy chemicals or you know inherited genes and so on but the right attitude and i was i was appalled by this because as far as i could see from reading as much as I could about the psychology of cancer and the likelihood of dying of breast cancer, there just was no strong evidence for this purported benefit of positive thinking. You're just as likely to die of the disease if you think positively than as you uh, think negatively. In fact, I guess I'm, I'm kind of the living proof of that because I got through the whole breast cancer experience with gritted teeth and clenched fists most of the time. I did not have a positive attitude. I did not know why I, in particular, had this disease with no risk factors for it. And I, I, I was pissed off.
3: And yet, here I am. There's always been when when people get cancer, and it's hit my family um, uh, uh, as well. There's always been a, a discourse there that strikes me as somewhat cruel. This idea that people are fighting breast cancer. Um, when when people get sick, you'll see uh, people tweet or say in an email or something, oh, but you know, cancer's never met a fighter like so-and-so. I remember Barack Obama saying that about John McCain um when his brain cancer was diagnosed. And it's always struck me as a strange way to talk about that, because it makes it seem like if you end up dying from the disease, well, maybe you just didn't fight hard enough.
2: Oh, absolutely. It's called blaming the victim. You know, if you're, you're not getting better and you're repeating positive affirmations to yourself over and over during the day, well, obviously you're not doing it with enough enthusiasm or enough spirit. You know, that is a very painful thing. And I I remember corresponding with a woman in New Zealand who had been told that she had only months to live uh, with her breast cancer. And she said, why is it all on me, basically? Why isn't there more criticism of the kinds of treatments that exist? Why are we just content to say... Well, you didn't try hard enough. One of the things I think you
3: discuss really well, and it's very much there in the literature, I mean, a lot of the medical interventions we do, we know don't work, and we're just not exactly sure which ones. And so understanding American medicine from that more anthropological perspective, as some of it being ritual, I think is a really healthy, at least a lens to have on it. But having both been through it when your life was under threat and having seen it from this more cerebral abstract point of view, I'm curious how you bring those two perspectives together.
2: The main thing is that we don't know. We don't absolutely know what causes one cancer to grow and take over the body and another not. And the same with many other kinds of diseases. It's reassuring to us to think, well, this is something that we can control ourselves. And yet that's also a very disappointing thing to think if you end up not controlling it yourself. Breast cancer death rate has been going down some, but it it does not correlate with attitude or mood. You write,
3: uh, to to go off of the, the medical portion of this a bit, you write at the end of your book, Wild God, that we've made ourselves far lonelier than we have any reason to be. Um, and when you write that there, it's a critique of a certain way of interpreting science. But it seems to me that it's in a lot of your work about society and politics, dancing in the streets. You write about how we've lost the sense that we need to merge into collectives. Your political work is very much about solidarity. Why do you think we've made ourselves so lonely? What do you think it, what, what do you think it is that has driven us towards both scientific and social theories that atomize us from each other?
2: Well, I think it reflects um, the kind of cultures we have chosen to live in. I think we would find much more solidarity and community in a, say, a Neolithic culture or a Paleolithic culture. where we, people know they have to depend on each other to achieve what they want, whether it's a successful hunt or a good harvest or whatever. We don't seem to have that sense anymore of how much we depend on each other to get around, to uh, provide us with the the technology that allows our minds to travel around and learn more things. So we're very dependent on other people, but we choose not to acknowledge that enough. You talk
3: a lot about how recognizing that dependence and even recognizing that external reality of other people was a struggle for you growing up, and that it was really the solidarity of getting involved as an activist, and then having children that helped you bridge that gap. Uh, Tell me a bit about how those pursuits or relationships changed that relationship you had to the idea of other people and your your need for them.
2: Well, I think the first part was um, my involvement in the anti-war movement in the 60s and 70s, um, seeing that you could maybe achieve something with other people by working with them cooperatively, that you could not achieve on your own. And that just struck me like a... It seems sort of obvious to say now, because I've said it so many times in my life, but it's not an obvious thing. Very often we proceed as if, well, we individually are the only ones in the world, and other people are peripheral to us. Not at all.
3: I like that idea a lot, that that we actually act that way, even if we mouth a belief in in interdependence, what is, what is the difference between somebody who acts as, of, as if other people are peripheral in the world versus somebody who actually acts as if they understand the reality that other people are central and very much as real as they are? How do you know the difference between somebody who says, well, of course, life is all about other people? Versus somebody who feels that. Somebody who says, well, of course you need other people to to make the world better or to do anything. Versus somebody who feels that. I, I take your point that it sounds obvious to say, but it's actually quite hard to live by.
2: It's actually quite hard to live without that, though, too. Which is what we try to do in our highly technological societies. Is not to think about others, but to concentrate on ourselves. I don't know if there's ever been such a self-centered kind of culture as emerged in the United States, for example, in the 20th century, where you could find a church, more and more Christian churches became dedicated to getting you what you wanted and needed, not what other people may have wanted and needed, but just looking out for yourself. We are very unusual, I think, in this respect, compared to prehistoric societies, for sure, and probably compared to ones that are even quite recent in the last few hundred years.
3: I think when most people hear that story now, they think about social media and people looking at their phones, but you tell a lot of it in Fear of Falling, which came out originally in 1990, and you talked about that happening in the 20th century. So what's your story for why we became uh, a uniquely self-centered culture?
2: Well, I don't think we started that way. And this comes from a little intellectual uh, excursion into the Paleolithic era, the old Stone Age, when there were modern humans, modern in the sense of not being Neanderthals or some other type of hominid that we're related to. We do our best to uh, try to figure things out for ourselves, which is a good thing, but we also don't have a clear sense of what is a job for all of us or groups of us and what is a job for just an individual. I think we could get a lot more done if we would choose to work more together. In
3: Fear Falling, you talk about what happened in the economy in that period to the professional managerial class or the professional middle class that created a sense that in order to keep what people had, they had to turn inwards. They had to become more individualistic. They had to lose that sense of potential solidarity. Can you talk a bit about that analysis? Because it's really striking to me how much it prefigures a lot of what is, say, happening in this presidential election or what's come in politics after it
2: the professional middle class only existed began to exist as a class in like the late 19th century and it's a class which defied the marxist notion of there're just two main classes in society the bourgeoisie the wealthy people who owned companies and banks and other enterprises and the other class being the working class, the proletariat. And that was the way things were thought of until sometime in the early 20th century. The professions as we know them took form, things like the medical profession, the legal profession. They organized themselves into professional institutions. And very important to that was distinguishing themselves from workers, ordinary workers. You know, the professional middle class or managerial class had the ambition to want to rise higher in the class structure, even if it didn't mean becoming part of the bourgeoisie, but if it meant earning more, having more authority over other people. Uh, A common example would be you and me right now, Ezra. We're journalists. We make our living by having opinions and having, doing research that exposes new problems and new new, new things to pay attention to, and people listen to us, or maybe they listen to it's you. It's crazy, isn't it? I know it doesn't make any sense, does it? But we yeah. You know, we expect to be listened to in our professional, middle class lives. Whereas if you are uh, a person who cleans the offices at night, you don't expect to have any effect on the um, people you're working for or the enterprise you're supposedly part of. So we have this idea built into us us as professional middle-class people that we are worth more, our views are worth more than those of other people say, who drive trucks and change bedpans and, and do, do, do so many of the, the necessary, obvious jobs in our society.
3: It, it often seems to me that there's been a tremendous, I don't exactly want to call it conspiracy, but the way we value work seems very off. And this is something many, many, many people have remarked upon before me. It's nothing original about this insight. But if you took every journalist out of society... I think that we would lose something, but not as much as we would lose if you took every um, garbage collector out of society or every teacher out of society. And yet we have this capacity to attach both um, financial value, but also dignity and a kind of meaning to jobs that to anybody 100 years ago would look absurd, like management consultant or high-frequency Wall Street trader. And on the one hand, I guess it's a, a remarkable example of human ingenuity that we've been capable of doing that. But on the other hand, it sometimes seems to me like the people with power in society are engaged in a very desperate effort to stave off the recognition of, on some level, their own uselessness.
2: Well, you know, I I agree with you. It's especially astonishing when you look at economic differences, you know, the differences in what people are paid for what they do, and ask yourself, is that really how we value this work? Say, the work of a nurse's aide. Is It's it's so unimportant that it warrants only um, $15 or less an hour, whereas the work of myself may not affect very many people. I don't have a good sense of this, but, you know, you and I, both continue to write and report and analyze, because we feel that's something good and worthy, worthy to do. But is it really more more worthy than what a nurse's aide does? I don't think so. I think we need a little more, a little more humility here.
3: But but not just that. But there's a deep, and I mean this is a long time inside. I think of feminist critics, but in general, there's a deep diminishing and disrespect towards care professions compared to other kinds of work. Um, like this work that is just caring for people and keeping society going and alive and learning versus work that is more symbolic in its nature or more dominance-oriented has tended to to, to be paid much better. So, I mean, there's very much the the distinction of like, are you blue-collar, white-collar? I mean, a construction worker also does not get a lot of, uh, of acclaim in society. But there's this way in which the the caring professions, pretty given how big they are and how many people we're going to be needing in the coming years to care for an aging population, the way we treat that work, given how important it is to us, is really wild. I mean, the number of people who do things that are less important than a nurse's aide or a nurse practitioner is very high, Um, but it's only when you get – and this is something you talk about in Fear of Falling – it's only when you get to a certain level of – educational attainment combined with cultural capital that you that, that work, like say a doctor or a surgeon does, gets treated as part of that professional managerial class and gets treated as part of that elite.
2: Yeah, and, and doctors are a, f- a fabulous example. They're like the original template for what a modern profession would be. It has huge educational barriers to entry. You can't just say, oh, I think I'll hang out, how, hang out a shingle in front of my house and announce that I'm a doctor. You know, you have to be certified. You have to pay your dues in so many ways to keep that profession going. So it, it carries with it a certain kind of egotism, a certain kind of willingness to see yourself as better than other people, which I don't think is healthful in any way. But that's the kind of society we've created where there's really not enough to go around in terms of praise and respect and so on. So you do your best. You know, you do your best to try to block other people from getting into the profession. And medicine is, you know, such a an obvious case to me as somebody who is educated as a scientist. For example, it is known that if you want to become a doctor, the hardest course you're going to take as an undergraduate, is organic chemistry. That's the stumbling block that eliminates so many people who might have been wonderful doctors, but just didn't have what, you know, the particular kind of mind it takes for organic chemistry. But that keeps the numbers of people in medicine down. That's what this is. This is about maintaining a professional monopoly.
3: I had friends in college who wanted to be doctors and were cut out by organic chemistry. And something I always thought watching that, to take this a little bit back to the discussion of caring, is that it was very strange to me to make that the limiting principle, that what we wanted from a doctor was a very high capacity for doing chemistry as opposed to a very high capa- capacity for actually caring. I mean, it isn't to say there isn't A scientific dimension to being a doctor that these aren't hard jobs. But it is to say that what always seemed to me implicit in making that the really, really difficult thing you had to do to qualify in general for med school was we were saying that, well, anybody can be caring. Anybody can be a great communicator. Anybody can offer the kind of bedside comfort and listen in a way where they really understand what the patient is telling them. But not everybody can do science. When I actually think that it's very likely as much the opposite, that those caring dimensions are very, very hard to do. And the kinds of people, and this is to say nothing bad about doctors, um, many, many, many of whom are amazing, but that selecting for the people who do well at OCHEM may actually be selecting against some of the people who do well at some of these other caring dimensions. And that the end result is an American healthcare system that is much worse for patients and their dignity and their ability to be understood. But it's all in order, as you sort of say, to to make sure that the profession maintains this kind of respect and elite status.
2: hmm. No, you put it very well. I wish we had some kind of equivalent in journalism, but we don't. Uh, sometimes I wish we did. You know, we don't have some make it or break it type class that you must pass in order to become a journalist. We certainly don't say science comes first. And there have even been suggestions at different times over the years that part of what goes into determining who should be a a physician should be these caring skills, that what you really want to look for for is not the person who um, understands sigma orbitals in the carbon atom or something, but somebody who can talk to a person about how they're feeling subjectively and gain information from that, which may very, very much affect the way the per- the person is treated.
3: You know, the first uh, exposure I had to your work was nickel and dimed in 1998, and that spoke very much about these professions that are not given a lot of respect in society and what it is like to do them, but also what it is done unto the people in them. And something I was thinking about was that that book did come out in 98, which was this very good economy, and the headline indicators are great, and we were in the boom years. And that even in that moment, you had this huge uh, class in America who were treated terribly, who were on a minimum wage you couldn't live off of. And in some ways, there's something similar now. You hear the president talking about how great the economy is. It's the longest expansion we've ever had. And yet so many people are struggling and so I'm I'm curious in your work on this, both then and and now. And I know you support a lot of journals who do this kind of reporting, and and have done much of it yourself, uh, more recently too. How do you think about that disconnect between what it look what it looks like the economy is doing when we look at say the GDP numbers, and then how it sounds when you talk to the people who are making minimum wage, working at a diner?
2: Well, you have to acknowledge that there's something wrong with the ways we evaluate people's work and effort and what they deserve, and I put quote marks around deserve, uh, as a reward for doing that work. I think there's something very, very wrong when people who have fun jobs such as I have, and I consider journalism to be a lot of fun and an adventure for me, who... Don't see any reason to do anything else. Don't do it for the money particularly, but do it because it's so fascinating. They love doing it. It's harder to find delivery truck drivers who feel the same way about their work. And yet I wonder how much that would change if we began to reward uh, delivery truck drivers or whoever with Pay that is commensurate with the the stress they experience, the kinds of decisions they have to make often very quickly. It doesn't work. It doesn't it doesn't fit.
0: Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor. What's a mistake they made that changed their approach? And how do they find their next great idea? Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc.
4: Support for the gray area comes from Burrow. Getting the right furniture for your place can be really annoying. borough.com slash box.
3: It feels to me right now that one of the splits in the left's vision of the future is, do we want a future where what we are guaranteed is well-paid work? And you can do that through jobs guarantees and the EITC and so on and so forth. Or do we want a future where we don't have to work, and automation takes over a lot of it. And you have something like a universal basic income, and people can while away their days in, in, in different ways. I'm curious where you come down on that—that that, that that issue of should should work be central, paid work central to the human experience, or is this a phase in development that we should be trying to get out of as fast as possible?
2: Hmm, it may not be our choice because you know it because co- it's very much the choice of employers now uh, to invest in say new kinds of robots that will take over human jobs or to do something different to pay better or whatever. Most of us think of this as a a kind of decision that we could be party to, that we should have some participation in. Do we want another automobile factory in our state or in our county or not? And what, what are the pluses and minuses? Now, everything that we talk about now has to be tinged with fear because if we lose the jobs we have now and say, well, you can that's all right. You don't have to do this. You can hang out at home and play video games and so on. Nobody's going to pay us for food. No one's going to pay our rent. We have no fallback most of us, if things go wrong. We can't see the possibility of a life without jobs. It could be a life that has a lot of work involved, but not jobs that are the same every day for every person. So I don't think we're being too imaginative about this. Do you think a universal basic income is a good idea? Yes. I think it's a good idea. I think we take an enormous amount of redistribution of wealth, though. When you have a tiny proportion of Americans making billions of dollars with a B, and you have the great majority making just barely enough to get by on, then I say we we have to reexamine how we're doing things.
3: Yeah, I mean, I think we could afford a universal basic income. I do think it's a possible thing to do, even where we are now. I mean, it would, as you say, take a lot of redistribution. Uh, I think the thing people get into is this question of, should we be trying to make work more rewarding or make it possible for people to not work? And I've heard people like even Bernie Sanders, I think, has been somewhat critical of the idea of universal basic income and has like if you go to his website and, and listen to his rhetoric, it's much more about making good work pay. And so, yeah, this question of should we be trying to strive for a future where we imbue work, even um, what's now considered low-wage work, with a lot more dignity and a lot more payment, I often think the problem of UBI is less about money than it is of culture. That it is easier for me to imagine how we would redistribute the money to fund a universal basic income than it is for me to imagine America changing its cultural attitude enough that it can respect the idea of people living off of a guaranteed grant for not doing work that the market is in some way demanding someone does.
2: Yeah, I think we could change that, though. I don't think that it's ordained that we are going to live according to what the market determines we shall do and how we will get by. We have to think, what are our lives about? So many of us have jobs that, unlike my job, and, or your job, and maybe, maybe our jobs don't even count as jobs, that we would happily do. And we'd happily do without pay because there's so, so, so much satisfaction in them. But we are a long way from making that universal. And one thing, may, may I sort of slightly changing the subject, but you... Please, yes. Did You did say you mentioned you read my book, Dancing in the Streets, uh, mm-hmm. A History of Collective Joy. And that book takes on something that may sound kind of peripheral to you if you're an economic type of thinker, but that something is having a good time together. There is no society on Earth that has not had some sorts of festivities, celebrations, rituals, which exist to unite people and make people feel good about their society. We just don't have that. We're amazed when we learn of um, other societies that routinely festivities and carnivals and things like that for no purpose Well. I mean, you could say somebody's making money somewhere uh, in most of these cases. But the main thing is to have a good time together. And that's, you know, ours is a society that has trouble with that idea of a good time together because we think of other people very often as obstacles to our having a good time. The traffic we're running into when we're trying to get to the beach or some other desirable place. We don't think of them as potential allies in this search for for pleasure and meaning in our lives.
3: One of the things that struck me so much about that book and in the context of some of your other work is that it really speaks to the way in which, particularly in this professional managerial class you talk about, leisure has been turned into a form of labor and a form of class signaling. And I've talked about this on the show before, but there are a lot of people who listen to this show for fun, which is great, and I'm glad they do. But it's very much a kind of fun that is about personal betterment, right? You're hearing from Barbara Ehrenreich, and you're you know, listening to, to interesting conversations on you know, universal basic income. And, and there's a lot of that out there where leisure becomes a form of more self-directed productivity and this great... Um, uh, writer Elizabeth Currad Halkett, who I've had on the show, talks about the ways in which a lot of the forms of leisure that that people in this class consume are signaling in a way how good they are at this symbolic, creative economy. Given how powerful work is in our cultural idea sphere, I think it one of the things that is lost that you see in your book, Dancing in the Streets, that other cultures have had is a sense that not just leisure, but collective ecstasy, ritual, these other things, that there are things that justify them that are not frivolous, that they're important, that they're part of the human condition and existence. And I mean, a lot of those have been built on top of religion. You talk about sporting as one of them. But I think as we've we've become more secular, uh, there are very few of them left. And I think there's a very powerful cultural, even if quietly so, pressure that your leisure should be another form of work, not something that in some ways— makes work feel a little bit ridiculous when it's over.
2: Yeah, that's true. There's a, the morality of leisure. <laughs> Is it bad? I mean, there's a strong puritanical tradition in in American culture going back to the 18th century, the idea that everything, every every moment must be accounted for as some kind of self-improvement effort. Uh, Some kind of, you know, improvement of the world type of effort. We don't tend to think, hey, that was fun. Let's do that again. How do we do that again? That's a kind of thinking that has often been associated in the minds of Europeans with, quote, native people, indigenous people. And there's not anywhere near as much concern for how do you craft a good time? In, I think, 2007 or 8, I went to Carnival in Trinidad. And I'd already done the research for my book, but I wanted to, to see some of this in action. And Carnival in Trinidad is when Trinidad and Tobago sort of drop whatever they were doing. And everybody goes into the streets mostly in costumes. Everybody has their particular team or group effort, their particular tunes, particular dance steps. It's a huge social effort. And most people have a wonderful time.
3: For the last five years, I've gone to Burning Man, the festival. And I don't talk about it in public all that much because people have a lot of preconceptions about it. And in many ways, and it's the way it exists culturally, it's been absorbed into these narratives of work. It's where tech bros go to network. And I don't ever have any part of that experience there. The reason I've gone and and the thing that was really shocking to me about it when I went the first time, which I went very much to just see what it was about, is what it is like to be in a place for a week where you exist without reference to your work identity, And where almost everything is built on these ecstatic rituals and a culture of just communal working together and togetherness. But nobody's getting paid for it. You can't pay for anything. It's like this amazing experiment in culture. And it really, for me, has been this constant reminder of how just constructed our culture is. You can tilt it 23, 25 degrees on its axis. And the way people act and the way it exists and what it does for you is completely different. And I've had the experience and many others who've gone to this have too where you come back and it takes you a little while to reintegrate because all of a sudden such different things are asked of you and the ways you would spend a day there have nothing to do with the ways you would spend a day out here. And it's always been interesting to me that it has become um, in some ways a symbol of work absorbed into the Silicon Valley narrative when, for many of the people go, it's a place where you get to experience for a week a life, uh, what it would look like if life really didn't have work. And of course, there's a lot of work that happens outside the thing to make it happen. But nevertheless, it's really shocking when you spend some time in one of these collective experiences, just how different it is and how differently it, it shapes, how you interact with other people, the sort of camaraderie that emerges among people you actually don't know, their friendliness to you. Um, We were talking about loneliness earlier in this podcast, but I wonder how much some of the ways in which we atomize now just have to do with the fact that we have so much less experience in these contexts that are built for communal experience that lead to communal bonds, even when people don't know each other that well. When you're not used to that at all and the friendships that come out of that and the relationships that come out of that, it's a lot harder than to
2: build those relationships in
3: your day-to-day life.
2: Well put, Yeah. We don't do enough trying that in ordinary life. We miss a lot of opportunities to interact casually, humorously, lovingly even with other people when we're around them because we just don't think of them as uh, potential sources of satisfaction and pleasure other than sexual. I'm thinking of, you know, once being in a train car where people got into a discussion, a group, group of people of about 12 people. Some were standing up, some were sitting down and were laughing. And, you know, it was like we realized that we had in each other a form of pleasure and an immediate kind of joy, potentially, that we would not find alone. When have you most
3: felt that? What what have been the experiences in your life that had the most of that collective nature to them?
2: Well, probably some of the protests and marches and things I've been on as a political person, as an activist, and just feeling, you know, swept up by the, the crowd and the strength of our collective purpose. Now, I know that kind of thing, feeling of being swept up by the crowd can also lead in some very bad directions. I mean, people could be swept up by a crowd of Nazi youth or something. Uh, they, you know, you can be swept up by all sorts of things. But we could also choose to come together in ways that promote ourselves as a society, as a kind of a super being, a being which is larger than any one of us.
3: I feel like this is something that gets short shrift now, but is just how, on a soul-fulfilling level, how deeply social and pro-social activism can be. And I think for a lot of people um, who've come of age in this era, you're told that a lot of activism is just things you do online. You're sitting in your house and you tweet the right things, or you click here to write a letter to your congressman, or click here to be connected to um, your member of Congress's phone line. And it's a very atomized form of activism that I think looks a lot like activism on the surface, but in terms of playing that role in people's life, a role that may or may not have to do with ever achieving the goals of the activist organization, but may achieve either a heightened state of consciousness or deeper social ties in your community or with people like you, or even just understanding people not like you because you have to collide with them I think a lot more is lost when people move from offline to online activism than is recognized. And that's beyond just the question of how efficient the activism actually is.
2: It's a good point. Yeah. I mean, because there are things you are not going to feel just from looking at a screen. There are forms of human interaction you are not going to experience through a screen. So, yeah, we're, we're missing a lot and we barely know even know how to talk about it. Look at the fact that there's no word in English uh, for collective joy. I think there—is there a French equivalent? Help me here. That—my—I'm um, that,
3: that my, I'm so limited in my language that I'm going to be a very little help here.
2: Okay. I'm pretty limited, too, to English only. Um, but we we do lack words to describe that kind of experience. We can describe all kinds of sexual experiences and feel you know, feelings that go with them. But we're not so good at talking about what it feels like to be part of a group that is consciously seeking fun or fulfilling some other some sort of purpose.
4: Support for the gray area comes from Bombas. How's your sock drawer looking these days? Underwhelming? Is it the seat of all your disappointments? A wasteland of unmatched sandpaper rough foot sleeves? Well, this spring you can start looking forward to opening that sock drawer again with Bombas. Finally, I have something to look forward to. Bombas socks have all kinds of features like honeycomb arch support, anti-blister tabs, and cushioned footbeds. Bombas also sells clothes for other body parts like t-shirts and underwear. Also, Bombas wants to make returns and exchanges easy with their 100% happiness guarantee. So if the dryer or anything else eats a sock, or if you're unhappy with your purchase for virtually any reason, they say they'll do whatever they can to replace it or make it right. Bombas sent me a few pairs of socks a while back, and they're my favorite socks. I'm literally wearing a pair right now. I know I'm supposed to say nice things here, but it's true. So there you go. You can get comfy this spring and get back with Bombas. Head over to bombas.com slash gray area and use code gray area for 20% off your first purchase, that's B-O-M-B-A-S dot slash gray area and use code gray area at checkout.
1: This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance... Who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.
3: I wanted to talk, and this will be a little bit of a a shift in our conversation, about um, the core of your book, uh, Living with a Wild God. Because you were known for many years, and in some cases still are, as a very prominent voice for atheism. And you've also written this beautiful memoir about, among other things, mystical experiences you had when you were young and um and, and still have, I think, sometimes to to, to this day, you say at the, the end of the book. I'm curious how you made the decision to write that book, because that had to be, I would think, a somewhat scary book to write given how people knew you and the reaction you might imagine that having from people who had been your allies in in the in the in the great war on behalf of materialism
2: <laughs> um, what what do you think <laughs> should I not have written the book i think that's No i love the book oh oh good <laughs> that's really nice to hear
3: <laughs> to to be clear you you you've got a very sympathetic audience for this one
2: i felt very mixed about it on the one hand, I felt like something very ha- important had happened to me uh, that I could not describe or explain easily in the language available to me. And so that was a challenge. But it also it almost, sound, this is, may seem silly to you, but it was almost seemed to me like a journalistic responsibility. This bizarre thing that happened to me, this, quote, mystical experience, it was something worth reporting to other people. To, to, to sort of reach out and say, this happened to me, it m- might have happened to you too. What the hell is going on? What do we understand about this? A mystical experience is sort of a, an experience of losing one's sense of self and be going on to another kind of level. I think it's worth reporting on, but I also sometimes feel very uneasy about that particular book, Living with a Wild God. I want to explore it a bit
3: because, so first, because a lot of people probably haven't read it, can you just talk a, a bit about what the experience at the center of it was?
2: When I was about 17, I went on a skiing trip with my younger brother and a friend from school, and didn't get enough sleep, didn't get enough to eat. All the the kind of crazy stuff you do when you're teenagers. You don't worry about how you're going to pay for breakfast in some small town in the Sierra Nevadas or something. So it was a challenging situation physically. And at one point, I don't know how to put this in words yet, but I know that Barbara was gone. Barbara was no longer here. And what there was instead was the world without Barbara in it, which goes on very well without me. I'm happy to report. But I think we we do need to have a, a way of talking about these things that are, quote, religious or, quote, mystical, and sharing it with each other and trying to understand what it means. And I say that as an as an atheist.
3: Yeah, one one thing I'll say I love about the book is that it's a skeptic's book, trying to understand an experience that doesn't fit. And it's something, as somebody who is pretty materialistic in my way of looking at the world and reasonably scientific in my way of looking at the world, at the same time, I think that you're not doing that work and that approach justice if you've created a world where What's a quite common experience human beings have, you just make it somewhat culturally unsavory to talk about them because they don't fit the models you already have. I, I just I have this very deep belief that the world is much weirder, stranger than whatever we think it is. And closing ourselves off to that is a is a mistake. But I, I wanna go into this a bit because you have this great paragraph where you write that what was happening was that, quote, Instead of attacking, say, trees with all the word power at my disposal or dismissing them as too routine to merit attention and moving on to the next thing, I had let them run wild and speak for themselves. I, the point of consciousness tasked with organizing sensory data into a coherent reality, had temporarily ceased to exist. And you say a little bit later that you would just fallen down on your job as a conscious human being, sort of like going on strike. And as somebody reads a lot of... Buddhist literature and and other kinds, and just interested in what experience people are describing when they describe the experience of enlightenment or non-dualistic awareness. That's very much what it sounds like. It sounds like a labor organizer describing (laughs) that your consciousness was going on strike.
2: Well, because, you know, every second that we are conscious and aware, we are putting a world together. It's not just that the world out there is Stamping our brains with a particular pattern at a particular time. We are creating it. And that's work. I mean, I have to be able to look, I'm in a radio studio and see, I have to see these strange objects and understand that they're microphones, understand they have something to do with the transmission of sound and so on. That's all effort. And that depends on my past experiences and feedback I'm getting from other people, too.
3: One of the things that I find interesting about mystical experiences, and then in a different way, which I, I know is not something you're writing about in that book, psychedelic experiences, is that on some level, these are very clearly perception as mediated through the brain with psychedelics. You've added a chemical, and you know you added that chemical, and it lasted for a predictable amount of time. In mystical experiences, like even in the one you describe, there was hypoglycemia at work. There was exhaustion at work. And yet, when people have them, it feels to them like attaching to a deeper source of truth. You would expect that given, how much they seem to be mediated by physical conditions or physical chemicals, that people dismiss them as simply an interesting, artificially constructed hallucination. And instead, they can go on to become very, very central to the way people understand the world and organize their own lives. As somebody who talks a lot in that book about how the brain perceives the world and thinks a lot about those questions given your scientific background, why do you think that that experience didn't just seem to you like a strange thing that happened to your brain one day, like a, like a quick bout of almost mental illness, and as opposed to something that was revealing a truth that lied beyond your sensory perception, It was external to you as opposed to simply internal to you.
2: Well, part of my re- response to that experience was to say, okay, this is all part of the material world, everything that happens to me, everything that I've experienced, is part of the material world that I put together in my head all the time, every moment of my life. So partly that was my sense. To dismiss this, this was odd. Nobody talks about it, though. Why should I? And I still have that feeling about that book sometimes, that it aroused in some people a sense of, why would you say this? Um, why, why, when I just shut up about it? And I have to say, I have wondered. But then I get letters, as I often do, saying, you know, it happened to me, and it was very much like what you described. And then I think, aha, now if I were a real scientist, or a real journalist or something, I would follow up on all those letters and get, you know, get the details, And keep exploring.
3: I think the problem, right, that people run into is you so rapidly run into the issues of consciousness and how can you how can you validate somebody's experience of the world? And the it seems to me the issue we run into in in this conversation all the time is that as soon as you get there, people want to shut down the conversation because well, how can you prove anything, right? Some people have schizophrenic hallucinations, some people have um, mystical uh, experiences, and some people just have this consensus form of reality. And we even know that that consensus form of reality is itself a little bit weaker than we like to imagine, that the brain is making a lot of predictive guesses based on what we're socially conditioned into. And so it always seems to me that science is a much easier time with the things that can be proven with some instrumentation than the question of, what it felt like to be or even not be Barbara Ehrenreich in that moment, uh, all the way up to the problems of consciousness of what it feels like to be a bat. I mean, I think there was just a book that came out actually by somebody who I was going to ask you about panpsychism, and I think he's a panpsychist, Darwin's mistake or something like that, that's all about this issue of how much science has walled itself off from because it does not know what to do with experiences that are going to be by nature subjective and yet, so much of our experience of the world is going to be by nature subjective, that that means that there's a lot of the world we just can't do anything with very effectively.
2: This is a huge problem. <laughs> um, what does subjective mean? You know, I think one of the problems with, say, American medicine is that it has for so long discounted subjective experience. It has depended so much on the notion of the body as a thing— an inert thing with possibly a little control center in it somewhere. But there's not enough thinking about all the all these questions. And in fact, you know, scientists often leave them aside.
3: I, I mentioned panpsychism a minute ago, and it, this is something that just came on my radar as an idea more recently um, uh, in, around some books that have been written – But it's this idea that consciousness pervades down into very small parts of life. Um, And you have a very interesting discussion here in Natural Causes, which now seems to me to connect to this book as well. This is something that, that you push, not that consciousness does, but that agency does, that we need to understand that our bodies have cells that have an agency that is not always working in our best interest, that even electrons seem to be doing something that we can't predict just through classical physics. And this idea that there's just more happening in the universe, there's more Agency and I don't exactly want to call it decision making, but down to the down to the lowest levels and and that the universe has much more life in it, uh, given how we think of life than we typically give it credit for. I'm I'm curious if that's a if that's a reasonable read of of your work and maybe how some of these experiences informed some of your some of your other approaches, both to the science and to the the world itself.
2: Oh yeah. My thoughts about science changed a lot in in working on this book, um, natural causes. Because you know, it, the book is, has two things. One is dealing with the fact of our own mortality and the fact that, you know, we're not going to influence that totally by what we eat and what, how much we exercise and so, so on. But it seems out of our control. But when you look closer, and in this case, I'm looking closely at particular cells in our body that make the decision, and I'm putting quote marks around that, whether or not a cancer is going to spread around the body or is just going to stop growing right where it is. When I first saw this referred to in scientific literature as cellular decision-making, I mean, I could not believe it those words were not even possible together when i was studying cell biology so many years ago because right the, the body is a thing and um, how could a make how could a thing make decisions and particular a very small thing like a, a like a, an individual cell and yet more and more this turns out to be the case you mentioned electrons well, an electron can be in one, oriente, one spin orientation or another spin orientation. Which one it's going to be in is not something that we can predict. That's something that the electron, quote, decides for itself. And when you begin to see that, that kind of thing going on in more and more realms of scientific endeavor, Maybe we've gotten something wrong here about the universe. We've thought it was a lot more dead than it is. One of the things you do in, in natural
3: causes is you make an argument that it's both morally and philosophically important that our bodies are not as united in service of the perpetuation of whatever it is we think of as ourself, um, as we normally like to pretend. I mean, you talk a lot about microphages and and how they often work with tumors and the way in which that is an affront to how we often think about death, could you talk a bit about why you think that's important for how we think about death? What 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 is the difference between a world where our body was a unified machine trying to perpetuate itself versus an organism that is made up of a lot of different component parts doing a lot of different things, sometimes at war with each other?
2: I don't know what all the implications are. I think we have a lot of absorbing of knowledge to do I'd like I mean this business of cellular decision making to de- describe certain activities by things that would be submicroscopic then we have to try to do that we have to try to um, understand what is going on at those levels and keep keep going I don't stop just because, there's no data. <laughs> no, you gotta keep you gotta keep pushing.
3: In in that same book, you have just a, a discussion of death that I think is really very powerful. And one of you have this line that I very much saw myself in, where you write, quote, We persist in subjecting anyone who dies at a seemingly untimely age to a kind of biomoral autopsy. Did she smoke, drink excessively, eat too much fat, not enough fiber? Can she, in other words, be blamed for her own death? And I find that I do this, too. And the implicit idea, of course, is that if I can explain away why somebody died and I'm not going to do that thing like smoking, well, then maybe I won't ever die. <laughs> maybe I'll just go on forever. Um, and what does it mean to to reject that? And, and and what? why do you think it is a bad thing that we subject people to this sort of biomoral autopsy?
2: It makes us feel good. I mean, if you find out somebody has died and you find out that person had such and such a bad habit, then, as you said, as, as Ezra, you can say, well, I'm not gonna do that, whatever that bad habit may be, uh, although that same bad habit might turn out to be a good habit in the next wave of scientific research. We don't know. Uh, it, it just seems, again, to me, maybe a kind of victim-blaming. What? Mm-hmm. She died? Well, she didn't live right then. Well, no, of course, people die. That should not just stop us in our tracks. That's a condition of our being here, that we will will not be here forever. And I think we have to find some ways to embrace that. Let's end on a way to embrace
3: that, because I know you've got to run in a second. You write towards the end of that book, death is not a terrifying leap into the abyss, but more like an embrace of ongoing life. And you don't mean by that what I think a lot of people might think you mean. So, 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 what does it mean to think of death as an embrace of ongoing
2: life? When I think of dying, I think of all the things that will continue without me. It's not the end of the world when I die. It's a it's a tiny blip in the history of the universe, um, below a blip, and. We have to get over that sense that I am everything. When I go, there will be nothing after me. I ended my book with a quote from uh, Bertolt Brecht, who was dying when he wrote this. He wrote a poem about black birds. And what his understanding in that poem is that he might be gone the next day, but the birds will still be there the other people that we love or have known or have imagined will still be there in some form. So I think we we have to stop thinking of life and death as something that ends with the skin around our bodies, that there is much more going on here than we than when we currently understand. And we have to determine to Get to it.
3: Barbara Ehrenreich, thank you very much.
2: Well, thank you for a very intelligent, challenging interview.
3: Thank you to Barbara Ehrenreich for being here. You'll notice we did not get three book recommendations. There were uh, reasons for that had to do with her schedule. But I'm going to offer three recommendations of her books because I've had such a great time reading to prepare for this. So one is just Fear of Falling, which was released initially in 1990. They just brought out a new edition of it. But it is genuinely a prophetic book about not just the economy, but the politics of the American economy. It is one of the early books to talk about the professional managerial class as a thing. It really foretells a lot of the debates we're having in the Democratic primary right now. It also is just an amazing discussion of campus protesting and movements in the 60s that when you read that, it really makes you feel like nothing we are living through is in any way new. We are just going through the same debates again and again. But there's a lot in there. You should check that out. Um, I loved Living with a Wild God, her memoir, which we discuss a bit in this. I know if you hear that and you, you know, have built your self-identity as skeptical and only what science can say that you might be a little skeptical of that one, but it's actually a great book and it is written by somebody who is a skeptic with a PhD in science. And it's a, it's in that tension that I think the book is really, really valuable. And then Dancing in the Streets, her her history and exploration of the idea of collective joy, is just something that will help you look at our culture and other cultures in a different way, and it is worth reading. And thinking about uh, or listening to, if you prefer it that way, uh, just, to, to, just to get a bit of that perspective on our life. Uh, among other things, if you like the Johan Hari episode of this podcast about the ways in which depression and anxiety might also reflect the social ecosystems we've built for ourselves, I think dancing in the streets is going to be of particular interest for you. Um, as always, thank you to Cynthia Gill for engineering, to Jeffrey Geld for producing, to Roger Karma for researching. The Ezra Klein Show is a Vox Media podcast production.